Well, good morning. Good to see everyone today. I'd like to welcome all of our guests here in the room. Uh, I want you to know how thankful we are that you've come to worship with us at Christ Community. And uh, thank you for showing up on a cold morning. Uh, we got snow today. Hey, all right. My kids were severely disappointed. They're like, oh, it's gone. Uh, I want to also welcome all those who are watching online. I know many people will check us out online, either right now live or sometime this week before they ever visit in person. So thanks for doing so. I hope that uh, I get to meet you in the future. Turn with me to the book of Esther. The book of Esther is where we're at. We're in a 10-week series looking through Esther. Today we're in Esther chapter 2, and uh, we will finally meet uh, Mordecai and Esther, the two Jewish main characters. So far in this book, we've seen a lot of things happen. Let me uh, touch on that in just a second. Let me just tell everyone, I encourage you to come back next Sunday. Next Sunday, we'll have I Love My Church Day. It'll be a big, big day for us as we uh, celebrate God's faithfulness here and all that He's doing at Christ's community. I've already met so many first-time guests even before this service today at our earlier services, and I'm just so thankful. Pastor Stewart preaching our 9.30 mask-required service over there. So we have a mask-required service that happens at 9.30 in Auditorium A, our old sanctuary. And then uh, I preached in here before, I mean, at the same time. So that was just a great. That, that gives us an opportunity. You don't know this yet, but what we are excited about is those two services are forcing us to intentionally multiply. So we've had to push... Uh, some of our team members around. Garrett is leading worship over there at 9.30. And, uh, and so some of our other guys will be preaching some over there. It's just a really cool opportunity to force us to multiply in some areas because God continues to give us great growth, and we're so thankful for that. But I want to encourage you to come next week to I Love, I Love My Church Day as we continue to celebrate all that God is doing here at Christ Community. Before we read, just to remind us, we completed chapter one. Uh, we've looked at King, uh, king Xerxes, he's a train wreck of a king. Uh, last week we called him tree, uh, King Drunken Moron, and a lot of people laughed. Um, but we've seen his lavish lifestyle, we've seen his spoiled attitude, and really his kind of bossy behavior. We see a man who thinks he has all this power, but he doesn't even have power to control his own wife in his home, and, and she doesn't respect him or doesn't honor him, so he kicks her out of the kingdom kind of thing and uh, writes a decree that she's not ever allowed to come before him again. So this is kind of the moment we found ourselves in. Today we pick up Esther 2, verses 1 through 18. I'm going to read it. We're going to pray. We're going to have our Bible study for the morning. If you're with me, say amen. amen. All right. Everybody's awake. It's cold outside, but we're alive in here. Here we go. After these things, when the anger... All right. Hey, I like a little theme music behind this. After these things, earlier in the 9.30 service, I was preaching, and somehow Pastor Stewart's mic picked up in here too. And so they were hearing me preach and him preach. It's great. All right. Stay off the stage this time, Pastor Stewart. Just kidding. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, 
son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away from Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her, her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices, and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem in the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, these 18 verses given to us this morning. We believe in them. You teach us about yourself. You teach us about your plan. You teach us about your love and your faithfulness to your people. Oh God, would you speak to us this morning? Cross this room as we consider our own lives, our own situations, and our own circumstances. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Parenting is uh, one of the greatest and uh, most difficult things we do as adults. And there's things I love about parenting. I'm great at certain things uh, in life. I'm great at, I think I'm a good reader. I think I'm a pretty good leader. I'm a terrible parent sometimes. Any parents feel me? Sometimes I get it right, sometimes I get it wrong. But one of the benefits of, of parenting is you get to walk through the good and the bad of your children. And sometimes your kids get into messes. They just make a mess sometimes, don't, don't they? For instance, here's, here's a couple of my kids and a couple of the messes they made. This is, uh, 
two of my kids. This is Hudson. Marcy calls me one day, and he's like, how old was he? Like one and a half, two? And she's like, Ronnie, Hudson has gotten into a bottle of fingernail polish, and it is everywhere, and he's eating it. It's in his mouth. I don't know what to do. I don't know who to call. And so I rush home, and she's like scrubbing him with fingernail polish remover. It's great. And this is Scarlett, who could not keep her hands off of markers to save our life or to save our home. All the time, markers everywhere, all across our walls, our doors, her face. This does not come off easily, and her poor face was red for a while, and people wondered what we were doing to our own children. Man, kids get into messes, don't they? You look at these two pictures, and it's, it's rather funny pictures when you think about it. Pictures of memories and, and these sort of things that make us all laugh. But when we think about this picture, and we think about these stories across this room, sometimes life leads us into messes. Across this room, there are stories of good Good times and stories of bad times. Across this room, there are stories of walking with God and stories where we maybe rebelled against God. There are stories of holy living and there are stories of sinful living. And these sort of moments, these pictures really are a reminder of our own lives and our own circumstances and our own choices sometimes. They question... Marcy and I had to ask in this situation, is how in the world are we going to clean this up? Like, how in the world are we going to clean this up? And I wonder if you've ever asked that about your own life. Your own choice that you made. It's a sinful choice. Sinful circumstance. You were dealt. It wasn't fair. But you were dealt it. Whether you committed a sin or you were sinned against... Maybe you've wondered the same about your life. How are we going to fix this? Or how can God even clean this up? There isn't a one of us here in this room who's not found ourselves in a terrible situation. Maybe your marriage ended. You didn't want it to end. Or maybe you did want it to end. But it, it, regardless, it ended. You're divorced now. Maybe you married an unbeliever and you deal with that you love Jesus and he doesn't or she doesn't maybe you slept with someone and you really wish you could have that night back whether it's a maybe a concession you made with an attitude or a compromise you made with money or a moment or something that you just live with the regret of that or that sinful decision or a moment in your life that caused you to step into just a terrible scenario. Maybe you didn't actually do it, but maybe you feel the effects of sin. Maybe it's your parents went through a divorce and you still feel like you're to blame. Maybe you're consistently trying to walk with Jesus, but the sin keeps affecting you. Whatever it might be, we all know what it is to have sinful Decisions made in our own life that, that bear the consequences or walk in the consequences of sinful circumstances that are all around us. You might, wanna, you might come to this realization where you're asking, how can God use this moment or how can God use this circumstance in my life 
now. And maybe you've even wondered, can God actually use you? Can God actually use you despite your affair, despite your divorce, despite your sinful circumstance, that right now, if someone were to find out about it, you would find yourself in shame? You'd find yourself stuck? You'd lose your career? You'd lose your life? You'd lose your wife? You'd lose your kids? What is it? I'd be going, how? How can God use me? Today, I think in this story, this story is a great picture. Ephesians 2, 1 through 18 really touches a lot about who God is and God's work in this world. It gives those of us who have messed up in our lives, those of us who've sinned or been sinned against, those of us who have broken relationships, those of us who are right now in this room, online, trapped in sin, there is hope and there is help. See, these texts, I really believe, teach us that God's purposes are not hindered by our sinful decisions and messed up circumstances. That God can use us despite the things that we've done, said, or experienced. And God wants to use us. And here in this text, you may not have noticed it as we read it, but we're going to dive into it a little deeper. This text is gravely wicked. Like what's taking place here is not good. So many people I've heard talk about Esther as kind of this Cinderella story. It is nothing like the Cinderella story. Nothing at all. Just consider where we're at here. So we we go back to the king. It's been a couple years since he kicked Vashti out of the kingdom. And it says, after these things, when the anger of the king had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And there's this longing in his heart. Now keep in mind, the king has thousands of women. He's got concubines of women. He can do whatever he wants with these women. These women who are living in the royal palace, they're no longer living in in their poor, humble upbringings. Now they can't get married and they can't have children. But for this culture, some of those women, it was prized of them to be there. And this king could have anything. But what he misses, he misses his woman. He misses a wife. He misses that close, intimate relationship in marriage. So the word for all of us here, men, to make sure we are watering our own homes, taking care of our own wives, loving them, caring for them, nurturing them. Proverbs talks all about the one who longs after another woman and chases after other women And at the end of their life, they end up being lonely and broken because they gave up all their stuff for chasing their own pleasure. The Bible says what's best is that we would have our own wives and we would love them and cherish them and care for them. So men, Valentine's Day is next week. Get her some flowers. You know, send her a card. Get her some chocolate. Take her to dinner. Tell you love her. Get dressed up for her. Look nice. It's free advice. All right, it's good. Can I get an amen from the women? Amen. Thank you. Can I get an amen from the men? Amen. All right, there we go. All right, well, we're not going to preach that today, but let's keep going. Verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Hey, king, I got an answer for you. Here's what we should do. We should gather all the young virgins across the land. We should call them to the kingdom And we should do like the Bachelor Persian edition is basically what they're doing. 
This, he pulls them all together, pulls all the virgins, and they put them under the leadership of this, of this one eunuch, Haggai, and he's in charge of them. So this is the idea they come up with. And it says, this pleased the king, and he did so. So the idea was, we'll do a beauty pageant, put them all before you, and the one who performs the best, if you know what I mean, who pleases the king the most, can win the, king, the queenship, can win the new queenhood. And the king's like, sounds pretty good to me. You know, this is how filthy the man is. It says, now there was a Jew in Susa. Now we meet Mordecai and Esther. Here they come. There's a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now this is, uh, the Benjaminite reference is a reference to King Saul. Mordecai comes from the same lineage of King Saul. And we're going to keep rolling here together to see where this goes. It says, who had been carried away. Notice that he has been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So the author really wants you to know that Mordecai is living somewhere else. He doesn't belong. What's important to know is, is Nebuchadnezzar took God's people out and put them in captivity in Babylon. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. And after that, another king is raised up who's not a godly king. At the same time, he doesn't believe slavery is a good thing, so he sets the people free, and they're free to go. And the idea here is in Jerusalem is where God's presence is. God's presence is in the, in the land, is in Jerusalem. And the idea here is that Mordecai is not in the land. He's not in God's presence. The Jews could move back there, but for whatever reason, and many say that Mordecai and Esther lived in the Persian area despite the availability to going, going back to where God's people are. There's a sense in which he's living in rebellion against what God desires. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Now we Pay attention here to a couple things. Esther is adopted, which is important to know that. She is adopted by him. Also, it gives us two names, her Hebrew name and her Persian name. This is the only place in this book where it's given both these names. And the idea is, is this, that Esther, her Hebrew name, her Jewish culture, her belief set is Hadassah. But she also lives in the Persian world under the name Esther. And some people say she is caught between two worlds. She's caught between knowing her Jewish heritage and what she should be doing and living now in the Persian area, sort of compromising what she believes. Doing things she shouldn't be doing. Eating things she shouldn't be eating. I mentioned in my first sermon, many of these Jews were giving up or giving in or some were standing up against the culture. It seems to imply that Esther and Mordecai are giving in to the culture. What's great about this is right now we're going to see these two natures of Esther sort of not really in. Throughout the whole book they're going to collide that by the end she's going to be standing up tall for God and his people. Now, maybe you're here today and you find yourself caught between two worlds. You had a profession of faith, you were younger, 
you were baptized, you believed the Bible, you believed Jesus to be the Son of God, died on the cross for your sin, all the Bible things, right? You're all in. You can sing the 66 books of the Bible. You can sing the songs, whole, whole, whole thing. Yet your life doesn't measure up according to the Scriptures. It doesn't line up to what the Bible says a Christian should be. You know what you should be, but your heart is far from God. If we were to, to just kind of lay it out here and just say, are you following the Lord Jesus Christ? Is He your Lord? Is He the Savior of your life? Does He have your heart and your money and your mind and your heart and your loves under His Lordship? Would you say yes? Or would you sit as someone who's consistently compromising, giving concessions about with your words and with your lies and with your heart, and giving things over to another culture, maybe the American culture, maybe the world in general. Are you caught between two worlds? As Esther keeps going, you're going to see her wrestle and become more and more committed to God and His mission. It says the young woman had a beautiful figure, Esther, and was lovely to look at. She was beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided with her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So you can see that Esther is really putting on a show here. She's going to this place, and she's going, I'm winning this thing. I'm going to give it my best effort. Who's in charge here? Haggai, okay. Hey, man, let's talk about this. And, and all of a sudden, this guy is really impressed with who she is, so much so he's like, hey, here's some makeup. Hey, hey, here's seven women for you. Hey, hey, you are really special to me. And she's earning his favor. It said he, she had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now think about this. Mordecai, who is a Jew, who knows the law, knows the requirements, knows the desire of God for his people not to live among pagan people, not to marry a pagan king, not to eat food that was not right for them. He basically says, hey, when you go in there, don't tell them you're a Jew. Don't even let them know who our people are. Just keep it on the down low. Now, there is no, not even a sense of which the Jews would be in trouble at this time. We just don't have that. We really don't know that until later on in the story. But this is the, the, the advice of Mordecai here. It says, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. What kind of adopted father is this? I mean, we know where this is going. Like, the, the woman who gives it her best for the king, and that one night gets to be queen. And Mordecai knows this, and he's like, hey, good luck in there, Esther. I'll be right outside watching and checking in and see how things are going. You're like, man, what kind of man? What kind of man is this? It says, now when the turn came for each young woman to go in, it tells us what happens over these few verses, that they'll go in. It says um, that they will be spending a year 
six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for the women. So they'll spend a year getting ready to meet the king. So it's like all the essential oil people and road and fields folks. Okay, you know, what, you know what's going on here? So it's like a, a lot of work making her look beautiful here. And it says when the time came for them to go in, she would go into the first round and she would come out and go to the second harem with a guy named Shazgaz. It was another great name. If you're looking for names, there he is, the king's eunuch. So it says she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her. She wouldn't go in again unless he delighted in her and was summoned by name. So it comes time for Esther. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what the eunuch had um, advised her. Notice the humility here. She's not asking for anything. She is so befriended this guy. She's listening to his advice now, and he is the one guiding her. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace, the tenth month, which is the month of Tabith, in the seventh year of his reign, so it's now been four years since Vashti was kicked out, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight. More than all the virgins. But he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. I want us to go deeper in that so we can get a better feel of the moment. Do you feel that story a little bit? Do you feel sort of how wicked it is, how gross it is? We ask, like, what in the world is going on here? We've opened the scriptures, we've read this story. And we ask, like, what is happening? I mean, you have Mordecai here. Mordecai, the man, who is not a great guy. He makes a bad decision. He puts Esther in a position of marrying a pagan king. How could he possibly do this as one looking after her? Why wouldn't he say, stay away from this? You're a Jew. Don't intermix in this way. Don't do this. We'll stand against it. Even if we must die, we won't do it. Why wouldn't he do this? And what about Esther? Isn't she supposed to be Cinderella? No. I mean, you see the concessions she makes, despite her own family heritage, despite the law, despite her God, she seems to walk away from it all for the best night of the king's life. She gives it up for the king. And we ask, like, what is, what is going on? This is the Bible. This is God's word. These are God's people. This is the woman God raises up to save his... This is the woman? Like, isn't she supposed to be righteous and holy and honorable? Where is, where is God in all of this? How could he let this happen? How could he let exile happen? How can God let Esther do this? Maybe you've had a situation where you've asked that, like, how could God do this? Like, how, how could God allow cancer to my child? How could God allow my mom or my father to die? How could God allow COVID? How, how could God allow Trump to win or Biden to win? How could God allow the things he allows sometimes? How can God let this happen or that happen? I, I want us to see three things I think we can learn from God's work in these verses. Real quickly. First thing is this. God works in imperfect people to accomplish his purpose. 
I need you to hear this. God works in imperfect people to accomplish his purpose. Mordecai puts Esther in a tough spot. He tells Esther not to let her race be known. Esther goes in and sleeps with the king. Both presumably are living in rebellion. Both make compromises. Both are quite similar to some of us, aren't they? This is what I love about this book is it's so realistic. It's, it puts us in such a comparison to their season and our season where we don't necessarily see God working all around us. That a lot of the, what we have to do is live by faith and walk rightly according to the word, the law God's given us. To obey his word, to step in faith while we also wrestle against a culture that so entices us to want to love it and the things it offers us. But God works in imperfect people to accomplish his purpose. This means no matter what's going on in your life and your choices and your sin, God wants to work in you despite your sin. I think back to a, a couple I knew at my previous church. <clears throat> We'd planted this church and um, one of the faithful couples on the core team, uh, some dear friends of ours, we were, um, we had this police officer who served our our church, and the wife of this man and the police officer, <clears throat> we saw frequently hanging out in the lobby, talking, chit-chatting, sort of flirting. And we watched this take place over a series of months, and we had enough concern to have a conversation with her. Sat her down, had a conversation, which she broke down confessing to multiple affairs with this man and tragic situation, brokenhearted. We had to call her husband and have him come over there at that moment, sit on the, our couch, and have her confess to him what was taking place. Devastating moment for them, for us, for their child at the time. And the man in that moment could so easily have chosen to walk away, to be done with it. But he so perfectly modeled grace and forgiveness and committed to this marriage and they committed to counseling, and they committed to their future together, and God worked to redeem the whole situation. Now they have more children, they're serving in the church, and God has redeemed terrible, sinful decisions for His glory. And maybe you have a similar story. If you're a Christian today, the truth is you're a living testimony of God redeeming sinful, imperfect people for His glory and so no matter the situation that you find yourself in, no matter the sin, if you will respond to the gospel, if you would confess Christ as Lord, you too can be used of God to accomplish His perfect purposes. This is the whole theme of the Bible, that through a terrible situation, God brings redemption, love, and, and His work. Look at David, you look at Paul, you look at Moses. God uses imperfect people to do an incredible work to accomplish His plan of perfect purposes. But the second thing we see is that God works in immoral circumstances to accomplish his purposes. He uses imperfect people, but he also uses immoral circumstances. Nothing good, there's nothing good about this situation outside of Esther being raised to the queen. You think about our own lives, and some of us have been through really bad circumstances, haven't we? Some of you in this room have been through really bad situations and really 
awful moments. You've, that might be sexual abuse. That might be physical abuse. That might be verbal abuse. It might be something that happened to you when you were younger. Parents left you. Dad left you. Mom left you. Never knew mom. Never knew dad. And you still feel the effects of that. You ask the questions why. Maybe someone sinned against you. Maybe you've sinned against someone else. The situations and circumstances we find ourselves in, we're often led to ask, like, why me? Like, why, why, God, do you allow this to happen to me? Where are you, God, in all these things? You think about Esther here trying to figure out what she's doing, where she's going. Think about Mordecai walking outside alone, trying to check in on her. What is going on? Why did you allow this to happen to me, oh God? See, the story of Esther is about God saving his people even when you can't see him. You don't see God's face. You don't see God's presence. And the question it prompts us is simply, can we still have faith when we cannot see God? Can you, in your situation or your circumstance or your sin, can you still have faith to believe even if it doesn't stop? Even if you find yourself in a spot where you still wrestle and still fight against it and you still deal with the effects of it, can you still have faith that God is still working in it and through it for his good purposes? The answer is yes. Even in tragedy and even in sin, God can use any and all circumstances for his glory. That's why it's so important for us who've been through hard times and sinful moments to have a friend who's a believer to talk with. Some of you need to talk with a pastor about what's happened to you so we can help you think through it and process it. It's so important to have others to to walk alongside of you in this life, to talk about the things that have taken place in your own life. Because God wants to redeem our immoral moments and the circumstances for his glory. And then third and finally, God works in improbable ways. Improbable ways to accomplish his purpose. When Esther enters this story, when Vashti is kicked out of the story, you would not think that Esther all of a sudden was going to hop in and go from adopted daughter all the way to the queenship. Just like that. Like, no one who, I mean, who would have thought that? But this is the way God works. God works in improbable ways to accomplish his purpose. This is the way he's chosen to save his people here. This story reminds us of another who would also be put through a terrible situation. It reminds us of another adopted one, like Esther was adopted. It reminds us of another who would grow up in a poor and humble circumstance, who didn't look like royalty. It reminds us of another who, wouldn't, who wasn't likely to be a king. It reminds us of another who would stand in the gap to save his people from death. It reminds us of another named Jesus. At the end of the story, there is a feast thrown for Esther. Esther's feast. But at the end of the story of the Bible, we find that upon Jesus' return and the wedding, there is another feast. Jesus' feast thrown for the true king. See, Esther was a shadow, a type of a savior to come. She was a type of Christ. Jesus would come because he is a better savior and and this whole story and i love it so much because this theme of king and kingdom thus far has been so prevalent and it will continue to be prevalent throughout the rest of the book 
it's almost like the author is so eloquently pointing us over and over and over again to a better king and a better kingdom. It's almost like the author is saying, hang in with us. There's a greater story being written. And I wonder here what we're to make of this whole story. And I tried to put it like this. No matter what, no matter your story, God is not done with you. No matter your story, God is not done with you. I don't know your story. I don't know your sin right now. I don't know your struggle right now. I don't know the temptations in your heart right now. I don't know what's been done to you or what you're doing to someone else. I don't know it. But what I do know is I have a God who loves you. I have a God who's in the business of saving those who come to him by faith. Those who come to him in all their sinfulness, knowing that they are ultimately sinners and nothing good in us. If we would come to him by faith, believing that he died for us on the cross, he was raised to life from the grave, that he would take our broken messes and our sinful decision and our messed up circumstances and would redeem them for his glory. Do you believe that today? That God loves you, has a plan for you? That he's not done writing your story? One simple phrase that I just love is that God walks with his people even when they don't walk with him. God walks with his people even when you don't walk with him. And some of you may not be walking with God today, but you can be. Some of you may not be walking with God today, but God is still working in you. And God is still walking and working to redeem you, working to pull you back, working to woo you out of this this living between two worlds and calling you more and more into an intimate relationship with him, working to sanctify us away from the world and make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. And some of you feel that pull in your life, don't you? You feel the pull of the world, of the temptation, of the sin. You feel the pull towards lust, towards all the covetousness and all the jealousy and all the anger. You feel that pull so real in our souls. And God says, there is a better way. There is a freeing way. Don't sit in the guilt and the shame of the past. Come confess your sin confess your circumstances come live and let the Lord redeem your story can he redeem your story are you letting God redeem your story are you saying God I'm not giving it to you I'm not giving you my sin I'm not giving you only I can do it because you don't trust anybody trust anybody but yourself you can trust the Lord you can trust him Give us some quick diagnostic questions here. First, do you feel caught between two worlds today? Like, do you personally feel that tension between the world and godliness? Between living for Jesus with your mouth, with your mind, with your feet, with your eyes, wholehearted abandonment for the Lord versus like the pull on the world? Do you feel that today? In what ways are you compromising your faith? What ways are you personally compromising what you're looking at, what you're thinking, what you're doing, what you're saying, ways you're living? 
When's the last time you thank God for his work and presence through your hard times? Beautiful thing about the, the Christian life is there's grace and mercy for, for, for everyone because we're all in the same boat, aren't we? We're all guilty. We're all, we can all sit here and be ashamed of our sin. We can all sit here and feel like, oh, I'm not measuring up. And the, the truth of the gospel is, is so freeing to get this. You can't measure up. It's not about you measuring up. You may feel guilty and heavy laden to say, I just can't do enough to earn his favor. Yes, that's so true. Jesus came for you. He lived for you. He measured up to God's perfect standard. And so all you got to do is to say, I can't measure up. I can't measure up, Lord. But you did. And today I give you my life. Listen, I gave my life to Jesus at 12 years old, and I said, I can't measure up. Jesus, you did, and he took a sinner, and he saved me despite my sinful choices and my circumstances, and he can do the same for you. Do you know him as Lord? Are you living him not just as Savior, but Lord? In that sweet confession that Karen gave, Jesus is Lord. The opposite of that is, I am Lord. Can you say Jesus is Lord of your life today?